Thank you uh, for coming back tonight. We certainly have a terrific turnout this evening. I appreciate that very much. Tonight we are considering the jealousy of God. The jealous God. Doesn't that sound offensive? For we know jealousy, the green-eyed monster, as a vice. One of the most common cancerous and soul-destroying vices there is. Whereas God, we are sure, is perfectly good. How then could anyone ever imagine that jealousy is found in him? Of all the attributes... I would submit that jealousy is the one that is least considered. If I would have asked you tonight to list six attributes of God, I doubt that you would have listed jealousy as one of them. But nonetheless, it is. And so the first step in answering this question is to make it clear that this is not a case of imagining anything. The Bible repeatedly speaks of God's jealousy. We are not incorrectly ascribing an attribute to God that does not rightfully belong to Him. Key verse is Exodus 34:14. For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And so, there, God's name is equated with jealous, because He is a jealous God. God. In fact, the Bible says a great deal about God's jealousy. Deuteronomy 4.24, For Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. For Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and His anger will burn against you, and He will destroy you from the face of the land. Deuteronomy 29.20, The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man. And every curse which is written in the book will rest on him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Deuteronomy 32.16 They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. There are 25 references to God's jealousy in the Old Testament. However, the fact that God is a jealous God is not just an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament concept as well. It is a uh, common practice in liberal theology and other uh, forms of theology that isn't truly biblical is to make a real uh, antithesis between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. God of the Old Testament is seen to be an angry, angry God. God of the New Testament is seen to be a loving God. God of uh, the Old Testament is seen to be a weaker God. God of the New Testament, a more powerful God. And uh, people like to make dichotomies between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. And certainly we do not ascribe to those dichotomies. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change in his character or his attributes. So we would not be surprised to see that the New Testament 
refers to God as being jealous as well, and it does. 1 Corinthians 10.21 You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You cannot have a part in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He? 1 Corinthians 10.22 King James, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And he has to provoke the Lord to jealousy. So you can see that jealousy indeed is a legitimate translation of that word. James 4.4 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the Lord is hatred towards God? Excuse me. Uh, that uh, fellowship with the world is hatred toward God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit caused to live in us envies intensely? Or James 4 or 5, NAS, or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. It must be remembered that the core attribute of God is holiness. Therefore, the jealousy of God is a holy jealousy. Since God is said to be jealous, there must be a positive quality to jealousy. There must be an appropriateness to jealousy. There must be an admirable manifestation of jealousy. I go so far as to say there must be a beauty in jealousy. Jealousy must be a good thing if God manifests jealousy as his character. So we need to begin by looking at the nature of God's jealousy. How can jealousy be a virtue in God when it is a vice in man? God's attributes are a matter for praise. But how can we praise God for being jealous? Well, first, we must remember that man's jealousy is a perversion of God's jealousy. We should not associate with God the kind of jealousy that all too often human beings manifest. Jealousy is, in fact, a communicable attribute. That means that we can, in some ways, emulate and demonstrate the jealousy that God demonstrates. It is an attribute that we share in common with God to some degree. But sinful mankind tends to pervert jealousy, to make it something that is not beautiful and something that is unholy. So we must remember there's a difference. Man's jealousy is corrupted by sin. The corrupted jealousy of man has no counterpart in God. We must remember from previous lessons that God's nature in man has been defaced. Man no longer reflects the glory of God. In fact, much of which is in man is antithetical to God's nature. Therefore, there is very little similarity between man's jealousy and God's. We must set as a goal that our jealousy would be made more conformable to God's jealousy. And in addition, we must learn that there is an appropriate jealousy. So notice I did not say that we need to learn not to be jealous. That would be incorrect. What we need to do is learn to manifest a holy jealousy, a right jealousy, and appropriate jealousy. So let's look at God's 
jealousy and see what is so beautiful and appropriate about it. God's jealousy is a zeal to protect a love relationship. The scripture consistently views God's jealousy as an aspect of his covenantal love for his people. So God is jealous of his people, if you will. The Old Testament regards God's covenant as his marriage with Israel, carrying with it a demand for unqualified love and loyalty. Thus, Israel is referred to as the wife of God. And her going after and serving other gods is viewed as spiritual adultery. Uh, It would take a great deal of time to go through all of the Old Testament passages that equates the worship of a false god with adultery, with being unfaithful to the living and true God. Ezekiel is one example. How weak-willed you are, declares the Sovereign Lord, when you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute, when you built your mounds at the head of every street and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. And in verse 31 where it says that they're not like prostitutes, it says at least a prostitute gets something for their service. But you are only harming yourself in becoming unfaithful to God. There is nothing to be said for it whatsoever. In the New Testament, the New Testament regards God's covenant with the church as a marriage between Christ and the church, carrying with it a demand for unqualified love and loyalty. Thus, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. In failing to serve and love him alone, the church becomes a spiritual adulterer. James 4.4 You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And God is jealous and relating to spiritual adulterers. Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that the spirit he caused to live in us Envies intensely. We must understand that there are two kinds of jealousy among men, and only one of them is sinful. The sinful jealousy. There is a vicious jealousy that is the expression of sin, an attitude of covetousness that says, I know what you have got, and I hate you because I haven't got it. God is God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite. I decided to look at this uh, attribute this evening because I thought it corresponded well with the morning's message on oppression. And especially talking about what is it that motivates uh, oppression in mankind. It's that desire of getting ahead or having what someone else does not have. That is envy in the uh, strictest sense of the word, and God does not share that attribute with us at all. 
That's what Satan accused God of in the garden when uh, God had said to Adam and Eve, you should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat thereof, you shall be, uh, for the day the, uh, for, uh, you shall die the day you eat thereof. And Satan uh, challenged that statement and said, uh, God knows that when you eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall be like God, knowing good from evil. God doesn't want you to have what he has. God does not want you to be like him. God is a God who does not want to promote us. That is false. There's also an insane jealousy. This is an irrational jealousy that is totally unfounded or unwarranted. This is the exercise of jealousy when there is no reason to be jealous. God is not irrational or ignorant in his dealings with us. So that people can become insanely or irrational in their jealousy. People can become jealous when there is no reason to be jealous. God's jealousy is always well-founded. It is never inappropriate. He's never mistaken in his understanding of what we have done. It is always against adultery. The good jealousy. Just as there is such a thing as righteous anger, so too there is a holy jealousy. There is a holy jealousy that seeks adherence to covenantal fidelity. God is faithful to us, and he is jealous when we are not faithful to him. The lack of a proper jealousy is a lack of holiness. It is not a sign of spiritual growth, maturity, or godliness to be indifferent to marital fidelity. We must be jealous of the marital covenant if we are to be a holy people. We should seek to be faithful in our marriage, and we should expect our spouse to be faithful as well. And, quote, open marriage, unquote, is to be seen as a great evil. It is not a spiritual demonstration of maturity for husbands and wives to just openly have extramarital affairs and and relationships with other people. That's not a demonstration of tolerance. And it's certainly not a demonstration of love. But our world thinks that it is. Uh, Many times our world sees absolutely nothing wrong with it and would wonder why someone is jealous. Well, the point is one should be jealous in that particular circumstance because there has been a marital relationship. There's been a covenant to forsake all others and cleave only unto your spouse. And so to be indifferent, to be uncaring, to sit back and be apathetic, in fact, is a manifestation of evil. That is unholiness. It should grieve us. It should hurt us to the quick. If we are unfaithful, or if our spouse is unfaithful to us. We're not speaking of a double standard. For as we said last week, God is supremely faithful to us in return. He is jealous that we be faithful to him. So often, jealousy is one-sided. 
People are jealous about their spouse, and they do the very things that causes them to be jealous. That's not true of God. You see, God is faithful. God's love towards us is pure, holy, right, never-ending. So he has a right to be jealous because he has been faithful to the covenant. He has been the good husband to Israel. He's been the faithful groom to the church. Jealousy as a communicable attribute. You must remember that jealousy is a communicable attribute. Therefore, we to be jealous in the same way that God is jealous. True love is jealous. Polygamy is first introduced in the Bible through the ungodly line of Cain. Genesis 4.19 And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. When God created Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and multiply, if God were simply a pragmatist, if God was simply looking at the most, quote, effective, unquote, way of doing that, he would have provided ten wives for Adam, and he could have had a lot more children and could have caused the land to be more populated much more quickly. But he didn't. He created Adam, and he created one wife for Adam, and that is Eve. Polygamy entered the world through the ungodly line of Lamech. But it was quickly, quickly adopted by the godly line as well. And many of the patriarchs had polygamous relationships. But all of them were sinful. And if you do a study of the Old Testament, you will find that most of them are just filled with all kinds of heartache and difficulty because of the jealousy that was created among the wives. All you have to do is uh, think probably the story that you're most familiar with is is that of um, Elkanah and uh, Hannah and Paniah and the uh, difficulties that uh, they entered into, or you think of Rebecca and uh, Leah and all the troubles that they had, uh, jealousy, jealousy. True love seeks to be faithful to and desires faithfulness from their covenantal partner. partner. Isaac is the first person in the Bible that is said to love his wife. Now, that is rather striking to me. When you think of all the personages that come before uh, Isaac. But Isaac is the first one that the Bible points to and says that he loved his wife. Genesis 24:67. And Isaac brought her into his, his mother's tent and took Rebekah and she became his wife. And he loved her and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, loving her is not a euphemism for having sex. And so often in uh, our culture, uh, to make 
Love is a euphemism to have a sexual relationship. It is not so in the Scripture. The euphemism in Scripture for having a sexual relationship is to know, such as Adam knew his wife Eve, and they bore a son. So the Scripture nomenclature for euphemism is to know. It's not to love. In fact, in the Scripture, love is quite different. And what is very interesting about Isaac and the fact that Isaac loved his wife is that he is one of the handful of patriarchs that didn't take an additional wife. He had but one wife. As did Joseph have but one wife. And that's remarkable, knowing the situation that Joseph was in, and knowing all that took place. But, but Joseph had but one wife. They are singled out in the Scripture because of their unique relationship to their wives. Isaac loved his wife. B. The issue of divorce is an issue of holy jealousy. God, after having a tremendously long-suffering spirit of habitually forgiving Israel's spiritual adultery, finally divorces her. The whole book of Hosea is a moving account of God's faithfully pursuing an unfaithful wife. It is a rather striking uh, picture where Gomer is told to marry a wife of adultery. However, because of her continual unfaithfulness, God eventually divorces her. Jeremiah 3.8 And I saw when, for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away. And given her a bill of divorce. So God refers to the situation that existed in Israel and says, I've divorced her. Because of her unfaithfulness. That he did not continue in that covenantal relationship. NIV, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. And there, it's then referring to uh, even going off into Babylon, uh, to uh, sending her away, sending her into exile. This is intended to depict the extreme unfaithfulness of Israel. We're to see how gross and corrupt her worship of God was. You see, this didn't happen just overnight. Israel had been unfaithful to God for generation after generation. But the time came... In which God said, I cannot bear this any longer. Because it was not producing holiness. It was not bringing about repentance on the part of Israel. In fact, they were just abusing the relationship more and more. And therefore, actually as a right of holiness and to end the adultery, God divorces Israel. See, however... God, in his great love, restores her and 
remarries her anyway. And that is the story of the book of Hosea. That's what we are to marvel at. That God divorced his wife Israel, but then pursues her and remarries her. I don't know if you are aware of too many people who have been divorced and remarried their former spouse, but uh, the executive director of uh, Church Extension, David Gundry, is a person in that very situation. He and his wife divorced. And later, they were reconciled to each other. And they remarried. In the first divorce, they were both in an unsaved state. Uh, they both came to know the Lord. Uh, they both repented. And uh, they worked on their marriage. And they're divorced. I mean, excuse me. They're remarried and doing fine. That's the picture of God remarrying Israel. The consistent theme of the Scripture is that God remains faithful to us even though we have been unfaithful to Him. That's the overarching picture. But thus, a legitimate ground and the only legitimate ground for divorce among married couples is adultery. Why does the Bible allow for divorce of a spouse that's committed adultery. Answer, because marriage in the scripture is to um, picture the relationship of God and his people. And the only reason that God would ever divorce his people is because of spiritual adultery. Not all the other uh, examples that people want to give about divorce. You see, when we think about marriage, we have to understand the sanctity of marriage. And when we talk about the sanctity of marriage, we mean by it that marriage is to picture the relationship between God and His people. You take away that basic framework and marriage tends to mean nothing. Why is it, you see, that it's inappropriate for uh, a homosexual couple to marry? Answer, because it is not a proper reflection of the relationship that is to exist between God and his people. That is the reason. That is the only reason. But you take God out of the picture and you see, then it all becomes up in the air. Same thing happens with divorce. The reason that there is one and one basis only for divorce, and that is adultery, is because it reflects the person of God. So, Matthew 19, 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. But what we need to keep in mind here is A, a person is not obligated to divorce his or her spouse because of adultery. Let me say that again. A person is not obligated to divorce his or her spouse because of adultery. In fact, it is commendable if one does not divorce an unfaithful spouse. 
Matthew 19, 7. They said to him, when Jesus was teaching about divorce, why then did Moses command? And I underlined that uh, because they said, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Matthew 19, 8. He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you. Notice the change. Why did Moses command it? He didn't. Moses permitted it. Why did he permit it? Answer, because of the hardness of your heart. So now, all of a sudden, it takes on a negative connotation. However, it is the one permissible reason in the Bible to do so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So here we see that what is the motivating factor behind the divorce is extremely significant. We should not divorce a spouse out of a hardness of heart, of an unwillingness to forgive. If our spouse is repentant, we should always welcome them. Always welcome them. We should always grant that forgiveness, even as God forgave Israel and remarried her in the book of of Hosea. So if the person is repentant, we ought to take them back. It's the hardness of heart that is at stake. We should not divorce a spouse because of hatred, because of anger, because of a vengefulness of wanting to get even or harm them in some way. It should not be a negative. The only reason that we should divorce divorce an unfaithful spouse is the same reason that God would. When everything else fails, maybe this is what will bring them to repentance. Maybe this is what is going to bring them back. But please keep in mind that God was incredibly long-suffering. And it was when Israel just failed to hear rebuke after rebuke, when prophet after prophet was sent, when calamity and plagues came, when everything else was exhausted. Then God said, I'm going to divorce Israel. And then she repented. And then he brought her back. Joseph's jealousy in the New Testament is an example of holy jealousy. In his holy jealousy, Joseph intends to divorce Mary privately. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. Now, a marriage covenant in the New Testament era is different from our marriage covenant today. The betrothal period was different. The betrothal period cannot be um, equated with an engagement. There are certain similarities, but they are quite different. The most important of which was a betrothal was as binding as a marriage. 
When you think about an engagement, you can call it off. Uh, you can end that relationship. It's a statement of an intention to be married. But it's not a marriage. You don't have a license. You don't, haven't said your vows. You aren't in this covenantal relationship. In the New Testament, in the betrothal period, you were considered husband and wife, although you had not yet consummated the marriage by having a sexual relationship. So, Mary and Joseph were in that betrothal period. They were committed to one another that they were going to marry. But in that, they were legally bound to one another. And so, that's why it says in Matthew 1.19 that Joseph is her husband. To help us understand, because there's no better way to describe that without having three paragraphs to depict what is Joseph's real relationship to Mary. So, simply, Joseph is her husband. And being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away privately. To put her away is to divorce her. But notice two things. He was a righteous man. That's what motivated him. He was a righteous person. And secondly, notice that it was not with malice. He did not want to disgrace her. That wasn't the point. He wasn't trying to make her a public example. He wasn't trying to belittle her. He wasn't trying to shame her. He wasn't trying to cause her harm, but thought that it was the right thing to do. And so he desired to put her away, but do so quietly or or secretly, not with a lot of fanfare, uh, not with a, 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 a priding, uh, parading her before others because she was pregnant. Joseph is said to be a righteous man in Matthew 1.19. And Joseph listens to reason. He is not insanely jealous. But when he had considered this, that is, divorcing her, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In essence, don't be jealous. Don't do this. Mary has done nothing wrong. And Joseph listens. Joseph believes. Joseph is not insanely jealous. Uh, Joseph, uh, God does a, a great work in the heart and mind of Joseph, but he sticks by Mary. Why? Because he's a righteous man. The righteousness was going to move him to divorce. Now that very same righteousness is going to compel him to stay married. Joseph does not divorce Mary. For he now knows there is no legitimate reason to do so. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So there is the proper aspect of jealousy in the word of God and in our relationships with one another. That is worth a great deal of contemplation and reflection. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if some of the things I said to you tonight struck you as odd or new. Because it simply isn't an area that most Christians give a lot of thought to, and that is godly jealousy. How does a jealous God relate to his people, and how do we, as a people, relate to one another in a jealous but holy way? So, answer, we should, we should value the marital relationship, and we should commit ourselves to being absolutely faithful to our spouse. And we should expect our spouse to be faithful to us. And that is what a true loving relationship is. Faithfulness to the marriage covenant on the part of both. That is a loving marriage by definition. If our spouse is unfaithful and they repent, we should always forgive. If our spouse is unfaithful and does not repent, we ought to be tremendously long-suffering. We should put up with, we should encourage, we should rebuke, we should do everything that we can to bring them to a place of repentance. But when we are totally exasperated and it seems as though there is no other thing that can be done when we have exhausted every avenue, then divorce is appropriate with the intent that that might bring the person to repentance. Not out of hatred, not out of anger, not out of vengeance, but hoping maybe this will wake them up. Maybe this will cause them to see. Maybe God will use this. And if they repent, to be willing to take them back. That is a godly jealousy. Let's pray. Our Father, help us as your people to be faithful to one another. To love as you have loved us. Guard us and keep us in our relationships, O God, that our jealousy would always be appropriate. That uh, we are not jealous over petty things that mean nothing. That we trust and believe our spouses. Uh, Lord, help us to realize what it is that really should cause us to be jealous, and that is uh, an actual act of adultery. And uh, Lord, uh, give us wisdom in responding in such situations. Help us to be loving and to know what loving is. Help us not to be hard-hearted as Christ speaks of divorce, as Moses allowed it. But Lord, uh, help us even in these hard and difficult times to demonstrate a Christ-like love and a Christ-like jealousy. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.